or lasso. And I guess Gwanti John is good. As I mentioned this morning, there are two types of wheels. One of these in Buddhist terminology is the wheel of samsara. Psychologists have a nice term for it. It's called the hedonic treadmill. And then there's the wheel of dharma. And the fundamental difference between the wheel of samsara and the wheels of dharma is the wheel of samsara just keeps on going around in a perpetual cycle and it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, it's like it really is a nice tread, treadmill. Whereas the wheel of dharma is designed to be you know, of a carriage, a unicycle, tricycle, whatever, and it actually leads out of samsara. It actually has a vector to it. It has a trajectory. It goes from here to there. It goes from suffering, away from suffering. Uh, it leads to liberation. So we begin the cycle, once again this afternoon, of the different methods of meditation for the four immeasurables. So we begin with the loving-kindness. And I'd like to begin again, again with fewer words when, I, when I'm actually guiding the meditation, with fewer words, this type of vision quest, to use something, uh, something of a cliché, um, but I think the med meditation itself is very meaningful, not a cliché at all, and that is to envision our own flourishing. You may envision your path all the way to enlightenment. It's, it's your vision. This type of practice, which I'm suggesting, is a type of loving-kindness practice, directing it for ourselves first, and then extending it outwards. This type of loving-kindness practice is a really wonderful way, in some variation, uh, a way to begin the day, to launch the day, uh, and it's also a very lovely way to bring the day to a close, that is, with the cultivation of motivation, the arousal of the most meaningful motivation at the beginning of the day, and then the dedication of merit at the end of the day. I mentioned also this morning that there is, I think, a pretty fundamental doctrinal difference between at least mainstream Judaism and Christianity on the one hand, the Abrahamic religions on the one hand, and Buddhism on the other, and that is, in my understanding at least, of the Abrahamic religions, someone else created this universe, we got created along with it, and then we, you know, hope it makes sense. But it was done with a purpose, it was God's own purpose. And when there are earthquakes and tsunamis and typhoons and so forth, there's some purpose behind that. And the Buddhist view is that, that there's no evidence that anybody else did it to us. There's no agent out there that, you know, threw a tsunami at us or threw an earthquake at us or a fire or what have you. These are natural events arising from natural causes. But of course, consciousness itself, consciousness, and the conscious acts that we engage in, these are also natural phenomena. So the Buddhist view, fundamentally, without going into a whole lecture about it, is that, that we are the creators of our own samsara. And the subject of karma is immensely complex and deep and textured, and I won't go into it now. But the fundamental point here is that no one's, make, knowing, no one's doing it to us, so there's no one out there to blame, um, on the one hand. Uh, but also, the suggestion here is that meaning is not to be found in the objective world. And that is, if you're trying to look there at something absolutely objective, and what's the meaning of a tsunami striking so many countries in the, in the South Pacific, in Asia, and so forth, what was the meaning of that? What was the purpose? What should we read into that? And the Buddhist answer would be, well, tectonic plates. You know, it just give a natural explanation, but there wasn't some big meaning in it that somebody designed for it. So meaning is not to be found out there objectively as something to be discovered, like a new planet. Does this mean that life is meaningless? No. But life, that is, what happens to us is not intrinsically meaningful, and whether or not it is meaningful, then, is up to us. 
So this is true, I believe, for a life. It is also true for a meditation, how meaningful a meditation is of following the breath, of practicing loving-kindness practice, and so forth, how meaningful these practices are, depends very, very much on our motivation. So as we envision, as we go into this practice, as we envision the future, I think something very helpful, I know it is helpful for me, is to recall a statement by William James. I think he wrote it in his quite renowned essay, The Will to Believe. The Will to Believe. He was being educated in really the, the birthing era of, of modern scientific materialism, when it was really getting going and was becoming the church scientific, in the words of one of the founders of modern scientific materialism, T.H. Huxley. Uh, but he was being educated right during that time when it was something new, it was something fresh, and it was becoming dominant very, very quickly. And there was a strong emphasis by a number of leaders in that field that it is absolutely illegitimate to believe anything unless there's compelling evidence already. In other words, don't give an inch. That is, believe only that which has been empirically and you know, demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt. And besides that, you know, just don't believe anything. Well, it raises the bar very high. William James, looking at that, acknowledged that when there's something for which the evidence is simply not clear yet, there's no compelling reasoning, there's no compelling uh, physical evidence or empirical evidence, then just to believe it anyway, he said, well, this is illegitimate. Why are you believing it? There weren't compelling reasons. So he goes along that way. Fair enough. And actually, Buddhism is not different. Buddhism doesn't say, well, this may sound really irrational to you, but reincarnation is really true, and believe it anyway, because Buddha was really an enlightened being. You know, There's no such appeal for irrational belief, belief without supporting evidence, and back very much to the contrary, the Buddha himself, as I think probably all of you know, really encouraged critical, skeptical, rational, and empirical experiential inquiry, and not simply taking things on the basis of his own authority. That said, William James adds something very interesting to my mind. And he said, but on the other hand, there's a whole category of reality that doesn't become true unless we believe it will be true. That is, it's not yet true or false, but it won't become true unless you embrace it, unless you embrace it, unless you believe it. And for those kind of things, where it's not simply an objective given, but in fact you're entangled with it, it's participatory, then he said, now it is utterly legitimate to believe, because the believing may make it so, and the non-belief will make it not so. Because non-believing is another kind of belief, right? So I think this then, this pertains to the Buddhist theme of shraddha or teba, faith. Faith, confidence, trust. And that is, there are some things that will become true in Buddha Dhamma, in the practice, in meditation, for example, in spiritual practice. Some things that will become true if and only if we have the confidence that they may if we commit ourselves to them wholeheartedly with all of our strength, soul, and might, if we really commit ourselves to them believing this is truly possible, then it winds up becoming possible and not only possible, but a reality. Whereas, is, as uh, Anitsepel was so, so, so well commented this morning, and someone else did today, I think it was not this morning, somebody else did today, the whole issue of is this skepticism or is it just vacillating uncertainty? And it's that vacillating uncertainty that is just the opposite. The hee-hawing, the can't make up my mind, maybe, maybe not, and never coalescing around something and giving it our absolute total commitment. This is the theme of, of faith in Buddhism, not a blind leap of faith, but a faith 
in the possibility and then committing ourselves to it, believing it may be so. So is it possible for people, the likes of us, I would say fairly normal people, I haven't seen any of you levitating or doing anything really spectacular, so more or less ordinary people like ourselves, is it possible for relatively ordinary people like ourselves to actually achieve shamatha? If we had all of these supporting environment, if we knew what we're talking about, we looked at the internal conditions of having few desires, contentment, and so forth, and if we had all of the internal requisites there, and we're meditating in a supportive environment for a sustained period, do we have the ability? Is this something we could do or not? Well, if one thinks, oh, I'm not sure, maybe it's just too, too, gener too degenerate an era. Maybe I just don't have what it takes because I'm not a special person. And so forth and so on. Then the answer is no. The outer conditions are there. The inner conditions are there, except for one thing, confidence in yourself. And then it won't happen because the mind will never coalesce around something you don't really believe in. Right? So the believing may make it so. And there's a whole area, such as achieving shamatha, realizing vipassana, developing the four immeasurables. Do you really have the capacity? Do you really think you have the capacity to develop and to realize immeasurable, boundless, limitless loving kindness and compassion? Where's the evidence? I've never seen that before. Where's the evidence? You know? Say, well, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but this is in the realm of possibility. And if we commit ourselves to it, that which was possible, that which was merely possible, becomes real. Without going on much longer, there's one word I like a lot. I like a lot of words. But here's one of them. And that is one of the words for reality in Tibetan, is sipa. Sipa. And the word sipa often is, can be translated as, as the world. The world. Okay. Not samsara, but the world. The word sipa also is a verb, and in Pali and in Sanskrit it's bhava. Bhava, which means to become. So the world is a world of becoming and no truer word was ever said. And that is, it's an ongoing process. There's no point that you can freeze dry it and say, okay, I like the world the way it was five minutes ago, just stop right there, I'd like to get off the bus. You know, that was the good one, you know? Well, it doesn't happen, but just becoming, becoming, becoming. So the world is a world of becoming. So that already has a ring of truth to it. Whether it's your own mind, your body, the environment, relationships, the economy, the environment, what have you, it's all becoming, it's all in process. But there's a third word, a third aspect of the same term, sipa, that I like a lot, and it comes in the colloquial Tibetan. Now it's possible. This, is, this could possibly happen. This could not possibly happen. This couldn't happen. Possibility. Sipa means now possibility, possible. So the world is a world now, if we, if we bring this into it, because it is the same word, the world is a world of possibility. It always is, we know that. But what type, that's all possibilities, which means all kinds of things could happen, but what type of possibility will turn into actuality? And this is where motivation comes in. And where the Buddha, I think, think, I think it's from the Dhammapada states, as the, as the potter shapes the pot and the fletcher shapes the arrow, so, does the wise, so do the wise shape themselves. So this practice of loving-kindness then, as we envision our own flourishing, is envisioning a world of possibility turning into actuality by motivation, by aspiration, and by commitment. So that's it. It is shaping our own future. And then even the most, one could say trivial task, like I'm going to do it right now, 
I just watched the whole course of my in and out breath. That's all I did. That's pretty lightweight. That wasn't a whole lot. I won't get a Nobel Peace Prize with that. Nobody's going to give me any accolades. But that one in and out breath, mindfully attending to the whole course of the in and out breath, that could be one more journey on the step to shamatha, vipassana, dzogchen, the breakthrough to primordial consciousness. Beyond that, unveiling the full potential of primordial consciousness, becoming a Buddha, realizing rainbow body in this life. How do you do it? A breath at a time. Okay? So something as simple as that, watching a single thought arising in the space of your mind without distraction, without grasping. A step towards achieving rainbow body. If that's the motivation, if that's the vision, if that's the world of potentiality you're seeking to turn into your world of actuality. So, shape your future by first of all envisioning it, what you would love to see happen. Let's do it. And as your first act of loving-kindness with this session, take the soothing and gentling step of letting your awareness descend into the body right down to the ground. Fill the space of the body like a fragrance and settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm.
and settle your mind with the qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance for a little while. With the practice of mindfulness of breathing, relaxing deeply with every out-breath, and releasing any involuntary thoughts or memories that might arise. As we attend to the sensations of the breath, we are attending to the world of actualities. They are occurring here and now. And there's great value in attending to what is true, what is real, rather than getting caught up in our fantasies, our speculations, our ruminations. It's a breath of fresh air. But now let's move from the world of actualities to the world of potential, of possibilities. In the spirit of loving-kindness, envisioning our own flourishing, and attending to what will be necessary for us to flourish in accordance with our heart's desire. And one thing that is obviously necessary is we can't do it on our own, in total isolation. From the world around us, we need our basic sustenance, food, clothing, shelter, medical care. We need friendship. On occasion, we need guidance and inspiration. Bring to mind now, if you will, what would you love to receive from the world around you? 
to enable you to flourish, to be truly well and happy. And in this spirit of loving-kindness, with each in-breath, imagine all that you truly need, rising up to meet you from moment to moment, day to day, year to year. Imagine, if you will, that there are forces in this natural world that are attuned to and support are yearning for genuine happiness, for liberation, that support our quest for awakening. And from in-breath to in-breath, imagine receiving all that you truly need to further you along the path. fearlessly, without anxiety. It's a simple point. Imagine the more in tune you are with reality, the more in tune reality is with you. A harmony within and without.
and imagine contentment with the world in terms of what you receive. There is a monastic ideal in Tibetan, being content with that which is simply enough. Imagine being content with what is enough from the world around you. Turn your direct your attention now inwards with the awareness that the only way we can truly flourish is by a profound, radical inner transformation. Releasing the shackles that bind us, that limit us, releasing the mental afflictions that delude us and opening up the inner reservoirs of wisdom, compassion, creativity. In the spirit of loving-kindness now, imagine the type of person you would love to become. And as you do so, imagine the qualities, the behavioral tendencies from which you would love to be free, and those qualities of being and of acting in the world with which you would love to be imbued. With each outbreath arouse this yearning that this may indeed be so, that you may indeed so become, that this possibility may become actuality. And with each outbreath, imagine such transformation, evolution, spiritual maturation taking place here and now. Let your imagination play.
Allow yourself <clears throat> to envision your highest ideal. Allow yourself to imagine the boundless, for which we have support from the great wisdom traditions East and West. In the Jewish tradition, the statement that humans are created in the image of God Jesus saying, be perfect as your Father and in heaven is perfect. Buddhism encouraging us to aspire for the perfection of perfect awakening. The Hindu tradition and others, in this similar vein, no boundaries, no limits. Throw off the shackles, the diminished horizons, the straitjacket of beliefs and assumptions of modernity. And imagine your own perfection. <coughs> and with each out-breath, breathe out this heart of loving-kindness. May it be so. May my innermost heart's desire be realized. Any vision of perfection in isolation is no perfection at all. In order to bring greatest meaning to your life, your life and lives, envision now what would you most love to offer to the world around you to bring the greatest good you can to those near and far, 
in the short term and the long term. Envision your own fulfillment in interrelationship with the world around you and all those who inhabit it. Each out-breath, letting your imagination play. Imagine actually offering such goods here and now, tangible and intangible, the best you can envision, to alleviate the suffering of others, to help them realize their own fullest potential. And finally, if you will, merge these two noble aspirations. The aspiration for your own awakening, the realization of your own heart's desire, and the aspiration to be of greater service to others. Let these two mingle, fuse, into the aspiration to achieve perfect liberation, perfect awakening, the realization of your full potential within, of all virtue, in order to be of greatest possible service to the world around you.
Then release all aspirations and all appearances and objects to the mind and let your awareness rest in its own nature, its own innate luminosity and purity. Let's bring the session to a close. So, today we just have one set of questions. This is from Malcolm. And Malcolm, as a side note, I left you a brief note on the bulletin board. I left you a brief note on the bulletin board. Yeah, unrelated. Yeah. Hola, so here's some interesting questions, a whole sequence of them, very practical. So uh, I'll just go ahead and read. The first question is about practice. Okay, I'll just go right to the questions. Question number one. What are the criteria to help us choose what object, or one could say what method, we should use for our shamatha practice? How do we decide? I'll give a short answer now and then continue reading. Shamatha is so transparent. And that is, how do you know if your shamatha practice is working? Maybe it's not working at all. Maybe it's taking you backwards. Or maybe it's taking you forwards. How do you know whether your shamatha practice is working? I want to hear it yodeled. <laughs> More relaxed if you're finding yourself un unwinding. And I've been delighted to hear from a number of you coming in for the one-on-one -on -one meetings. Oh, I just discovered recently how much tension I was carrying. I'm finding, oh, this, this, this tension here is being released. This tension here, oh, I'm finding, oh, I find it more released, more relaxed than ever before. Boy, if you want to bring a grin to my, to my face, say those kind of things, because then I know the practice is working. Practice is working. If you just say, I'm, I tried even harder this week than I did that well, last week, and next week I'll try even harder, whoa, welcome to burnout track. So there we are. A deeper sense of relaxation, it's working. And then, as Noah said, on top of that, emerging out of that, a greater unification, a stability, a stillness. Good sign. Out of that, greater vividness, clarity, 
luminosity good sign. So that's the short answer. How do you know which method to adopt? Or which combination? A number of you are, are balancing earth and wind. Mindfulness of breathing with settling the mind. Some earth with a sky. Mindfulness of breathing and awareness of awareness. Some are focusing primarily on just one method. Some are still kind of playing the field, getting accustomed to, getting familiar with all three methods. Um, whatever it is, this is how you know. And if you find among these that certain practices or combinations are especially effective in helping you achieve greater relaxation, stability, vividness, that's what you choose. So there's a general answer. Or if we are using all or some of the, I would rather say methods rather than objects, how do we choose to move from one method to another? Is it intuitive discernment or is there some thought or rationale like methods to suit temperament or methods to suit issues and stages we are moving through? There are issues of temperament, but I, I would prefer not to go into kind of a list, and I think lists are really useful. In the, in, in the Visuddhimagga, you know, there are lists. Tsongkhaba, in his great exposition of the stages of the path, gives lists of different types of temperament and which types of shamatha might be most efficacious for people of different temperament. Uh, it relates to our physiology, to wind, bile, and phlegm, to people more of a desirous nature, other of a more angry nature, some of a more discursive nature, and so forth and so on. Um, but I would say, let this be intuitive. I think it's, it's too easy to get caught up in categories and then wonder, but wait a minute, I'm 70% this category and 30% that category. So they have their value. But I think for the time being, where we are right now in this retreat, let it be intuitive and practical. And that is what practically really does seem to be working for you. And, and this came up in one of the, 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 my meetings today, that this, since our psyche, the coarse mind and the body, the coarse body, are so profoundly entangled. And one way of phrasing this from Francisco Varela and two of his colleagues is we have an embodied mind. Embodied mind. It's very true. It's a good phrase for the coarse mind. And the subtle mind, the subtle continuum of mental consciousness the substrate, is temporarily lodged within, you know, and then the Rikpa, pristine awareness, categorical error to say exactly where is it located, you know? That, that it doesn't make any sense. So as long as we're operating out of this coarse mind, which we are as we practice shamatha, then the transformation, and this came up in a, in a meeting today, the transformation, the loosening, the unknotting, the unraveling, is taking place in a real synergy between body and mind. So you may be settling the mind in its natural state, which is explicitly about unraveling the knots of the mind, the entanglements, the grasping, and then how do you say, allowing the mind to start mm, erupting <laughs> as you dredge the depths of your psyche and finding the emotions that were there. And of course, they were there all along, as any good Freudian would tell you, and I think any Jungian would probably tell you as well, but we, by keeping busy on a more superficial level, we keep them down, keep them down. Even in an elevator, we keep them down. We make sure, listen to the music, you know. Keep it down. You wouldn't want to have to be in retreat for 30 seconds as you're going down the elevator. That, that would be your mind without anesthetic. That could be awful. And so there we are. We're living in an anesthetic kind of world that seems hell-bent on protecting us from our own minds. So even in practicing settling the mind, which is really about unraveling the mind, a number of you are finding this is also unraveling the body. And that is loosening knots, having some interesting somatic sensations coming up. Some of them not so pleasant. It often, by the way, goes to the gastrointestinal tract. So in one of the three months retreats, we had one fellow, very, very sincere, very dedicated practitioner, had for, I think it was a day or two, 
uh, vertigo. You might recall there's one person, vertigo. I mean, just, you know, you know what vertigo is. And what, what's, what's up with this? You know, what's up with this? And it passed right on through. Other people may have, you know, just very irregular bowel movements, sometimes nausea, sometimes throwing up, and then it passes on through. It goes with the territory. Gut-wrenching fear. Well, it has something to do with the gut. And apparently there are a bunch of neurons down there as well. Exactly what they do, I don't know. I don't think they digest, digest food. And so the process is entangled, the untangling, the unraveling of the body and the mind. And mindfulness of breathing is really explicitly about untangling the knots of the prana system, the energy system within the body, loosening up blockages and so forth. So in the midst of all of that, you're going to find that the body-mind is becoming more relaxed, but not, how do you say, not in a linear fashion. Every day in every way, just a bit more relaxed in big spikes and sometimes eruptions of emotions coming up. Fear is a common one, and usually it's a nameless fear, an, an objectless fear, especially in such in incredibly safe environment as we have here. Um, so fear may come up, other emotions that may come up, and allow them, you know, what to do with them. So there's the answer to that. Simply choose intuitively, which is suiting your temperament. And again, te although temperament is kind of a long-term deal, uh, moods and emotions and just mental state from the morning to the afternoon may shift. In the morning, you may feel very perky and the mind very clear. By mid-afternoon, two o'clock, Two o'clock or so, you may feel the biorhythms are, hitting, are, are kicking in in a hot and humid climate and there's kind of like a, more of an earthy quality to it. You might want to be sitting up then to balance out or if you can't beat them, join them, you might want to take a siesta. It can be very, you know, people in, in hot climates have learned that a long time ago. That can be very helpful, a short nap. When, when your body says, I'm really sleepy, I want, I'm tired, I'm dull, say, go for it, baby, and have a nice nap. Right? and then come out refreshed again. So we go through multiple you know, moods, mental states throughout the course of the day, and like putting on different types of shoes for different tasks, we can take on different methods. A few weeks ago, I mentioned, here I'm reading again how, that is you, I mentioned how the five objects, the five methods of shamatha that I'm teaching, three modes of mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, could be considered as moving from the gross to the refined, or coarse to subtle. But I emphasize how each method could develop shamatha in and of itself. That is, you can actually achieve shamatha all the way to access to the first jhana. Uh, Malcolm writes, I tend to see the five methods of shamatha as five gears on a motor vehicle. First gear, full body. Second gear, abdomen. Third gear, nose tip. Fourth gear, settling the mind. And then overdrive to make, the, to, to make pace on the freeway, the fast lane of the freeway. Then awareness of awareness. So overall, yeah, I've, I've used that metaphor for a few years by now, and I think it's useful, knowing that no one gear is going to be the best all-terrain type of gear. Uh, it depends on, you know, the road in front of you. Uh, but Malcolm comments, in the last two weeks, I've been mostly driving in the fourth gear, settling the mind. I feel that I've not had enough, t uh, enough revs up, uh, up, to, up to shift into overdrive, awareness of awareness yet, though I generally do that practice at home. Yeah, and so all of this I think is true, but in the, true in the following way. And that is when we're attending in mindfulness of breathing to the preliminary sign. Remember, there's preliminary, acquired, and counterpart, and counter, uh, counterpart sign. The preliminary sign, sensations of the breath, for which full body awareness is preliminary, preliminary, preliminary. Abdomen is preliminary, preliminary. And then at the, at the apertures of the nostrils, that's the preliminary sign. 
right? Well, if we're attending to the sensations of the in and out breath at the apertures of the nostrils, and, then, and, and the method that goes with it, here's the object of mindfulness, apply introspection, do it. If we take that method and compare that right there, bracketing it, leaving out acquired sign, counterpart sign, and compare that to settling the mind in its natural state, is one of those two methods coarser and the other one subtler? And we're speaking of the starting out phase when you sit down and you attend to the tip of your nose and you note the sensations of the breath. I would say, yes, settling the mind is subtler. It is subtler. Having said that, though, for those people who have put in one or 2,000 hours of mindfulness of breathing in a continuous fashion, not just 20 minutes a day, but like 8 or 10 hours a day, then what has been found and replicated, to use a scientific term, many, many times, is that as you continue in this practice and your whole, se- your whole system, your mind-body system settles down and settles into a finer and finer equipoise or nyamsha, just finer and finer balance and more balance and more balance. What's happening there is in terms of the nervous system, the prana system, you're getting better and better tuned, more and more finely tuned, which means that the sheer volume of air that you're taking in will decrease. Just like, frankly, the sheer volume of food you'll need to take in will decrease. You're not burning in many calories, right? And so, as the volume of air becomes less and less and less, the sensations of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils become subtler and subtler and subtler. So there are levels of attending to this preliminary sign that are more subtle than initial levels of settling the mind in its natural state, where you're seeing an image pop up and a big thought come up and a cascading waterfall of all kinds of stuff coming up. Between those two, the sensations after a thousand hours of mindfulness of breathing are more subtle than that. But entry level, settling the mind is more subtle. Now, there's something that I, I, I really like a lot because I like honesty. I like, me, pe- I like people to be very straightforward, not tricky and manipulative and, and got to have a hidden agenda. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And I like to be that way as much as I can with other people. There's something just absolutely straightforward and honest about mindfulness of breathing. It's like a good old-fashioned pickup truck. No computers, no, no fancy doodahs. Just, it's a pickup truck, you know? It picks up and it trucks, you know? There it does. It does what it's designed to do. And mindfulness of breathing is kind of like that. And that is, here's the object of, of, of mindfulness. Any questions? Here's what you introspect. Laxity and excitation. Any questions? And then you know it's not that difficult to recognize when your mind has simply lost the object. Because you've you know, gone someplace else, usually caught up in thoughts, right? And then you know when you're back. Oh, yeah, I'm back. So there's nothing very subtle about it or very, how do you say, nuanced. Or, you know, you're on it, you're off. You know, there it is. Good and straightforward. So if you're wondering, how good is my stability? Well, just watch your breath for a while. That'll be a really good, honest litmus test, right? Because there's no bones about it. You're either on the breath or you're not, right? So there we are. When it comes to settling the mind in its natural state, I mean, I have nothing, but it's way beyond admiration. I have reverence for this practice. It is so in, in sublime practice. And it is subtler. The method is subtler. The method is subtler than the method of mindfulness breathing in the following way. I can be sitting there right in the, hovering in the present moment, sitting upright, good posture, relaxed, alert, balanced, right in the present moment, mind fully focused on the space of the mind and its contents and noting what comes up and not being distracted and still be doing the practice incorrectly. Right? Yeah. 
Oh, I really like that thought. I don't have to give the commentary. Oh, I like that thought. Keep it, keep it up. What's up next? Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, interesting. Oh, I like that one. Ooh, don't like that one. Out, out, out. Gone. Gone here. Oh, like that one. Yeah, keep that one up. Up, up, go, go. No, not that one. Not that one. You know? <laughs> You're single-pointedly focused on doing the practice incorrectly. <laughs> right? And so that grasping business is subtle. That is, distraction isn't so subtle, you lost it. You're off to some other sense field or you're caught up and carried away by some thought. But if you're just attending to thought, like, you know, channel surfing, you know, like when my wife has the, the, the what's it called, the, the beep, we call it a beeper, the, the remote, remote control, she has it, then I might say, oh, stay there, stay there, I like it. No, you're on it, mute it, mute it. No, stay there, no, and move on, move on, move on. Mute it, mute it. You know, <laughs> I can drive her crazy that way. She actually likes to walk at advertisements sometimes. We don't agree on all things. So that's grasping. So as she was settling her mind in a natural state with respect to the television set, mute, change, keep it, keep it, turn up, turn up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it down, 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 down. Mute it, you know. That's all grasping. So it's subtle. It's subtle. And if you don't recognize it subtly, then you do the practice wrong. And it's, the words are so simple. Attend without preference. And yet, how many times have I heard, after I said that, maybe 20 times or so, people coming to say, mm, but if some thought goes on, and, and I, I, I'm practicing settling the mind in its natural state, and when some really negative thought comes up, I knock it out, and then, which part of not, no preference didn't you understand? <laughs> okay? Well, it's subtle. Now, awareness of awareness. So overall, yes, is awareness of awareness, entry-level awareness of awareness, is that subtler than entry-level settling the mind? Yes, it is. So in that way, yes, five gears, they go from coarse to subtle. Full body is coarser than abdomen. Abdomen is coarser than here at the tip of the nose. Settling the mind, subtler than that. Awareness of awareness, entry level, is subtler than settling the mind. Bear in mind, though, if you've been practicing settling the mind for a thousand or two thousand hours, you're going to be detecting some very, very subtle events. They can just flick through in 50 milliseconds. They may be this quiet hum of an embryonic thought that's barely breaking the threshold of consciousness. But you're so attentive. You're like a fisherman, like a fisherman watching a glassy, smooth pond and, and seeing that little tiny rise where a trout has just come up and just nudged the water up and it goes down. And you're a fisherman, you're just watching there. You're watching there and noting even the subtle ripples, right? So the degree of subtlety that will be aroused, sharpened like a knife, and the whetstone, the whetstone for the blade of your attention in settling the mind in its natural state, is the subtler and subtler and subtler thoughts and images. The subtler they are, you go from a butter knife to a razor. A butter knife can pick up the big chunky thoughts that come in. It'll take a razor to pick up these extremely subtle and very, very brief events, and you keep on sharpening all the way to shamatha. Okay? So, if you compared settling the mind into natural state, the degree of acuity, of high resolution, after a couple of thousand hours of practice, compared to day one of awareness of awareness, there's no comparison. Awareness of awareness much cruder. You know, like, okay, yeah, I got it, I'm aware, I'm not dead. I got it. I got it. Yep. Yep, sure am aware. Yep, I sure am not unconscious yet. Nope. No general anesthesia for me, <laughs> you know. Okay, good for you. <laughs> Moving right on now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, 
as I mentioned, the settling the mind in its natural state has this subtlety of not am I grasping or not, it's much more how much am I grasping and how much can I release, right? In any early phase of settling the mind, just to say, oh good, I'm not grasping at all, yeah, dream on. And it's like the gradient of lucidity, how lucid are you, okay? So, as for each of these, there's a pitfall. Mindfulness of breathing, here's the big pitfall of mindfulness breathing in the early stages. I call it humoring the method, humoring the practice, or humoring the breath itself. So in breath, yada 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 yada, out breath, yada 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 yada, in breath, yada 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 yada, out breath, yada 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 yada. It's kind of like walking your dog while having a conversation with somebody else. Heal. Now, what was it you were saying? I said heal. Heal. What's going on here? What are we practicing shamatha on? Multitasking. Right? And we can do that very easily with when we fall into the drone of counting. One, yada, 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 Two, yada, 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 Three, that's a way of doing it. Or just one, Now you're meditating on counting. Congratulations, you probably will achieve the second stage in a month or two. So, each of these has its pitfalls, and the pitfall of awareness of awareness is just spacing out. And that is, you come into the present moment, you release all objects of attention. You release your attention, withdraw your attention, disengage your attention from all appearances and all objects arising to the mind. And then the mantra would be, Duh! Not D, which is Manjushi's seed syllable, but duh, <laughs> which is the seed syllable of samsara. <laughs> that is, you're just not confirming, you're not getting anything. You're just sitting there vegetating. <laughs> so, very sweet, you know, kind of like, there we go. So, that's very easy to do. And so, there's the pitfall. So to recognize that in all practices of shamatha, every method, it entails a flow of knowing is absolutely crucial. So on Saturday, when I guided everyone in, in, a, in the awareness of awareness meditation, it was, a street, it was a sweet respite and peaceful refuge from the terror that I've been experiencing doing settling the mind. Uh, later, when I went back to my room, I wanted to do more of awareness of awareness. Yeah, who wouldn't want a peaceful refuge and a sweet respite? But I see that the motivation to do awareness of awareness was avoidance of the unpleasant experiences I have been discovering as I plumb the depths or dredge the depths of my mind, namely my insecurities, fears, and disillusion, dissolution of any ground for ego to take a stand anywhere. Arr! Turning into a pirate as well, I see. After thinking about it, I decided to keep going with settling the mind, but as it turned out, much of the meditations since then have been pretty lame, not so scary, and in fact, pretty mundane. Yep, you never know what's coming up. That's the nature of settling the mind practice. This is an interesting question, because from one perspective, one, I could imagine a lot of psychologists saying this, and with good reason. And that is you have to face your neuroses. If you have, you have really repressed material, suppressed material, you really need to come to terms with that, be aware of it, work through it, resolve it. But it doesn't get resolved just by pushing it, pushing it, pushing it down, pushing it down. Uh, certainly very true. 
mindfulness of breathing practice, where we simply release any thoughts, memories, fantasies, and so forth, just release it on the spot and come right back to this non-conceptual domain of the body and the sensations of the breath, which the Buddha referred to as leading to a sublime state, an ambrosial dwelling, very similar to Malcolm's terminology here. In this practice, taught by the Buddha more than any other practice, he doesn't make any reference to, oh, by the way, if while you're attending to the breath, some really strong emotion comes up, or some really strong craving or hostility, resentment, fear, like that, uh, stop the mindfulness of breathing and just attend to whatever's coming up. doesn't say that. Not for shamatha practice. Now, for vipassana practice, but of course that's optimally designed for the people who have achieved shamatha, this is very clear in the Satipatthana Sutta, then you're coming into the Satipatthana, the fourth, the Tembanyashaji. You're coming into this Vipassana practice with already a resplendently sane mind. I mean, optimally, in the Theravada, in Theravada tradition, you've achieved the fourth jhana. That's pretty sane. And then you're using that mind to probe into the nature of the body, feelings, mental states, and other phenomena, or all these phenomena collectively. And so even the Satipatthana was not designed to unkink our neuroses because it was assumed, hey, that's what shamatha was for. Did you miss that part? You know? And so if we come back to the shamatha that was specifically designed as a preparation for the four applications of mindfulness, we see it's mindfulness of breathing. But the Buddha doesn't say, oh, stop, you just had a big emotion come up, attend to it, investigate it, work it out, go to your therapist, and so forth. He said, no, continue practicing following the breath. And likewise, when Padmasambhava and other great teachers teach awareness of awareness, and something comes up, and that means anything comes up, because one's withdrawing one's awareness forever, to all the appearances to the mind, and settling in this utter simplicity of the sheer luminosity and sheer cognizance of awareness. Boy, is that out of the domain of my hang-ups, my neuroses, my, all my stuff. It's just cutting right through like that, like a hot, hot ice pick through butter. You know, this is the fast track. This is the fast track. It's just do not stop, do not pass, just right to the end point. So on the one hand, there's a great deal of wisdom to be gleaned, insights and so forth, by taking the, this settling the mind and just girding one's loins and saying, all right, settling the mind is not for sissies and I am not a sissy, and facing them and just weathering the storm, okay? To a number of you individually, I've given a metaphor that I like, and that is three types of crafts or mm, vessels. And one is, let's say, like a 60-foot schooner, a, sail a sailing, sailing boat. And imagine you're out in the mid-Pacific sailing your fine craft, and up comes a tempest with 30-foot waves, 150-mile-an-hour 150, 150 winds, and you're in the midst of a tempest, a typhoon, a hurricane, and it's, it's not giving you any sleep at all. It's just beating you up. On a 60-foot schooner and 30-foot waves, you're going to get beat up a lot. And you have to be very attentive. You have to be right there in the moment. This is not a time for a snooze, as if you could snooze. And that's it. When you really start dredging the psyche and the stuff starts getting unleashed, then one method is face into the wind and say... <laughs> yeah, this is R, not ah. <laughs> Difference of spelling. <laughs> I'm reading the pilot, the pirate into you. Arr, matey, I will face this. I've seen worse. 
I've seen worse, you know, be John Connery if you can. Uh, as if I was doing a good job, David will be my critic. But um, there we go, you know, just face into it, do the job. Just say, hey, this is what it's all about. This is facing whatever comes up, attending to it without distraction, without grasping, and I'm up for it. I got a good night's sleep, I'm well rested, my, my digestion's working well. This is what it's about, this is meaningful. This is know thyself from top to bottom, from the surface level of the psyche right down to the substrate, and I'm going to know myself all the way through. So when I got there, get down to the substrate and it's smooth sailing, I'll know how I got there. So there's a lot to be said for that. But there's also, more, in a more sympathetic note, there are times when we just, we just get beaten up and we're just feeling, I'm tired, and I'm even maybe sick and tired, and I don't think I can take any more for the time being. This is just getting a bit too much. I've been slapped around enough for today. In which case, you find that you have a craft here that is a shapeshifter, and you can turn your 60-foot schooner into a submarine and go, instead of R, go Auga, <laughs> and go down 100 meters. Go down, go down, 100 feet, 200 feet. Go beneath all those, those little wimpy 30-foot waves up on the surface. Just go down where it's run silent, run deep. Go down to the body. There's no chit-chat in there. It's a non-conceptual domain. It's just sensations arising. Just go down to the body and simply attend to the sensations of the in and out flow of the breath. Go to the infirmary. Go down to the ground. Let your sub sink right down to the ocean floor and just say, okay, I've come to rest. Come to rest in the earth element. Go back to the infirmary and breathe and breathe out. Give yourself a break. And whatever's being churned up by settling the mind, let it settle. Let it settle without arousing more. Sometimes just let it assimilate. Settle. Let your body work it out in terms of prana. Let your mind work it out. Sorting itself out. Settling down as you just breathe and take a break. Not skipping the meditation, not goofing off, not in the pursuit of hedonic pleasure, but just wisely saying, hey, I'm not always, you know, I'm not always the pirate. Sometimes I just want to take it easy a bit. That's one possibility, and it's completely legitimate. Another possibility when you're just getting beat up on the surface of the ocean there, is to turn your 60-foot schooner into a hovercraft and just go straight up about 20,000, 30,000 feet. Up above, beyond all the, all the clouds, all the wind, all the turbulence, just go up, up, up and away until you're in the clear blue sky, sun shining, immaculate open space and brilliantly clear, and just enjoy the... the the broad expanse of awareness of awareness. So that also, there's nothing illegitimate about it. Any more than dying is an escape technique, it's just a natural culmination. Any more than falling asleep is an escape. Falling asleep and slipping into the substrate is a really good idea. We get tired and the body gets worn out. Death is really the best remedy for a totally worn out, broken body. Death is just what the doctor ordered, <laughs> you know? Get rid of the broken body. And so, slipping into the substrate is, doesn't need to be seen as, a, as an escape mechanism, but simply something appropriate at the appropriate time. So the short answer, I've been running on here, but the short answer is that mindfulness of breathing all by itself is a completely legitimate practice without facing every single neurosis that comes up. So it's simply releasing them and attending to the breath, to the breath, the acquired sign and the counterpart sign, and lo and behold, you get shamatha dished up to you at the end. Right? And likewise, awareness of awareness, where we're simply releasing them all the way through, releasing them all the way through, and just focusing on the best semblance we have 
of the substrate consciousness, awareness of awareness. It's completely legitimate. It's not taught for sissies. The Buddha said this, the jnana kasina is the most profound of all shamatha practices. So there's a confidence here, and I'll end on this note for this question, there may be a little bit more, um, is it would be like, I've given a couple of you the, the analogy of, I think they're both women, so I, I use the word gender-specific, princess. Imagine that you are royalty, and you're, you're the princess of your palace, and you've got a very, very full staff, all these hierarchy of the staff to take care of the palace. And the princess simply says, let it be so. And you speak to the top, I don't know, I don't even know what, they, know what they call them, but the top servant who's in charge of all the other servants and say, let it be so. And then, the, and then the princess simply does her princess things. And the staff take care of everything. You know, they got a party for 100 people coming in. The princess says, let it be so. <laughs> you know, let it be so. And then the staff does all the work and she just bees a princess, right? And the, and the job does get done. If she's a really good princess and people want to obey her, then the job gets done and she comes down and, bees, and she is the gracious host in the midst of unruly guests, perhaps. But it just gets done without her having to micromanage and watch every single thing. And without having to learn all the tasks from the, from the, the top maid right down to the lowliest low maid. I don't know about palaces much myself. Um, but she doesn't have to micromanage everything. She doesn't have to watch everything. She can simply trust that what needs to be done will be done. And going, attending to awareness of awareness is attending to your own deep sanity. And there's a trust there that if you simply be the princess, or in your case, the prince, just be the prince and mind your own business. Just be a good prince and rest in awareness of awareness and do a good job of it. Everything that needs to be taken care of will be taken care of. And you don't need to watch it all. It will be taken care of. Because you're attending right to the ground of your own sanity. And you're not obscuring it with reinforcing anything to the contrary. And so trust that it will be done. And likewise, mindfulness of breathing. It'll be done. Trust from the bottom up that what will be done will be done. So. Final point, and that is... Oh, yeah, so I have a sentiment. Should we, stick, should we just stick with one method, or is it skillful to move between the different methods as the terrain of our minds change? I would suggest moving with the terrain of your mind, and you may very well find, as you mature in the practice, that the oscillations of the mind start to become less and less frequent, so that you may have a whole day really quite smooth, and another whole day fine, and then day four, a bump, but not something catastrophic, you know? And so overall, then you might find you're just settling in and finding, I think I know my long-term vehicle here. And it could be any of the three. And you apply the other ones, if the mindfulness of breathing gets a bit stodgy, as the British like to say, a bit muddy, a bit heavy, lighten it up. You can do that with exercise, with a walk, with diet, but you can also lighten it up, settling the mind, or awareness of awareness. It's like shining a bright light into it. So you can modulate. So overall, as we're now venturing, slowly venturing into the latter half, of this eight-week retreat, I think it will, be, it will behoove many of you to kind of choose your primary method and say, okay, this is what I'm going to be generally coming to. This, this will be where I gravitate to. And when I gravitate there, if I find whatever reason this isn't working too well, then I'm going to shift up or down but as, the, as the situation calls for. So, again, this balance between not being too rigid that, oh, I've chosen this and I have to stick with it, and not being so wishy-washy that it's always, oh, gee, what shall I do now? I'm not quite sure. I'm, 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 
uh, 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 debilitating uncertainty again. So finally, uh, Malcolm notes, I note that awareness of awareness is very popular in the third wave therapies and any spiritual hotspots, such as Byron Bay in Australia and I suppose California in the US. Oh, what isn't in California in that regard? Uh, so sure, yeah. Uh, people often feel they claim they're getting it with great openings and awakenings, often only after a weekend seminar. I really like the enlightenment, we enlightenment weekends myself. I think those really sound good. I don't know what I've been messing around for the last 40 years. I still haven't been one to the, to the enlightenment weekend. I guess I've just been, you know, slow on the uptake. I hope that I'm not suffering from the opposite of empathetic joy, namely, namely cynicism, but I often wonder if they're really getting it or missing it altogether. Well, they're getting it. The real question is, what's the referent of the word it? <laughs> they're getting something. And apparently, you know, many people are coming away happy campers. They're satisfied with the it that they get. I often wonder, in fact, if there's a tendency to reify awareness. And what I would suggest here, reifying awareness, what I would suggest is that one is latching onto a thought, an image, an idea of awareness, rather than going for the real McCoy, the genuine article. Uh, would you say that this is the... This is the same as I mentioned the other day, this open presence and that the little rodent comes out and basks in the sun of open presence. Do you think that there's a great danger of reifying awareness? And again, I'd rephrase that, glomming onto a mere thought, an image, an appearance, an impression, an idea of awareness, when one does not go through the basics training of ethics and even more fundamental meditations before they launch into overdrive of awareness of awareness. So good, these are all very rich questions and I think we've spent, I've, I've spent about the last half hour on them. Uh, this also is a very good one. Uh, from my limited experience, I've been around and I talk with people, and that's about it. Um, what I sense is becoming very popular. I wouldn't quite call awareness of awareness. I would say it's, um, it's sometimes called choiceless awareness. That's very, very popular in California and elsewhere. Choiceless awareness, just sit and just be open and be here now, and whatever comes up, just be present with it. You know, with no context at all. Just, here, we're doing a weekend retreat. You know what the method is? Sit here and just be here now. Power of now. Just be present. And that's it. But do it and have a, have a nice sauna and get a massage in between and be here now. And that will be $1,000, please. <laughs> the massage was extra. Um, so it can be called choiceless awareness, open presence, being here now. It can be called all kinds of things. Uh, I think it's pretty clear to everyone here that there's really quite a, a, a very significant and clear-cut difference between the shamatha method of awareness of awareness, or shebalamipe, shine, between awareness of awareness or shamatha without a sign on the one hand and open presence on the other. They're really two very different practices, and they lead to very different results. So first of all, awareness of awareness. It's not open presence and it's not choiceless awareness. It's choiceful awareness and it's not open presence, it is to the contrary. It's just, in a, in a way, it's almost 180 degrees away from open presence. Not that one is good and one is bad. Open presence is the word we have for Dzogchen practice. Um, but open presence is equally attentive to all appearances that arise, subjective and objective, thoughts, sensory images, and so forth, equally present with all of them. And there are different nuances about that that I won't go into. I mean, some, when they practice choiceless awareness, my sense is that they simply allow the mind to the attention to go off and attend to whatever, a bird chirping, oh, bird, maybe even label it, bird chirping, oh, bird chirping, and then pain in the knee, oh, pain in the knee, and then, oh, 
sound of wind. Oh, a thought. Oh, my, ba my butt hurts. You know? And this is choiceless awareness because it's like you let your dog off a leash. You know? Where a big playground would have been a lot of dogs who've been pooping. And the dog goes, mm. <laughs> you know, just goes, goes wherever it wants you. Oh, who's been here before me? <laughs> so, just letting your mind off the leash. I'm quite not. I don't know what to call that. I think letting your mind off the leash. <laughs> you know, that's. I don't know what it's called except for have a nice day, you know. It's not a shamatha practice, it's not Vipassana practice, it's not Dzogchen or Mahamudra. Maybe it's something, but I would say it's just called letting your mind off the leash, which can be quite nice. Some people call it daydreaming. Uh, some people call it choiceless awareness. Um, so, I mean, you know, what the word actually means, that depends on the teacher. Open presence, as in the method itself, you know, extracted from the whole context of Dzogchen, is this utterly open presence. But, as I mentioned before, it is embedded in a way of life, embedded in a worldview. It is a tremendously rich practice. And, of course, it is designed for those who have achieved shamatha and had profound realization in Vipassana. That's just the straight truth of it. Now, people are in a, in a big hurry nowadays. Whether they're Buddhist or not Buddhist, pretty much everybody's in a hurry. A lot of people have a lot of other priorities, and they can't, don't have time for a one-week retreat, so they go for a weekend retreat. And they say, I've only got a weekend. I've got some extra cash here. Give me your best shot. It's kind of like coming into a bar. I want some whiskey, and I've saved up my money. Just, what's your best whiskey? Just give me your best shot. And if you come to a Tibetan Lama, from the Nyingmar Kagyu tradition, the best shot? Oh, our best shot is Dzogchen. Well, give me one shot of Dzogchen, and make it snappy. In a weekend, mind you. And they do. Maybe good results come. Maybe not. Weekend's kind of short for Dzogchen. One can get some idea, but the open presence without any context, who knows, for, the for some individual who is so incredibly ripe like Bahia, Maybe be given instructions in open presence, they just break right through to Rikpa. What do I know? I don't see any evidence to suggest that's true for most people who take a weekend retreat on open presence or choiceless awareness, and at the end of a weekend they've broken through to Rikpa. I don't see the evidence for that. And so in which case, uh, I don't think they're going anywhere near awareness of awareness, because that's just not that practice at all. Awareness of awareness with withdrawing from all sensory appearances, all objects of the mind, we're withdrawing even from the space of the mind and coming right into the sheer luminosity and cognizance of awareness itself and resting there. And that's a subtle endeavor. And that's not easy to do on a weekend. So I think what is common is more like this choiceless awareness or open presence and so forth. And I think in our world where there is so much stress, so much tension, so much fatigue, so much tightness, so much drivenness and hope and fear and enmesh enmeshment, if I can use a word, in the hedonic pursuits, which is so tiring, fatiguing, they wipe us out. To come for a weekend and not do that, to come for a weekend and just... Boy, is it nice just not to do that for a weekend and come away at the end of the weekend feel, feeling refreshed. And I got it. Being here now is not a stupid cliché. That's pretty nice to do. It's refreshing, it's revitalizing, clears the mind. Good. 
I like it. I got it. I got it. So that's good. But I think it would be a mistake to confuse that with a path to liberation. Yes. Noah, go ahead. A microphone, if we may. We still have about eight minutes. Thank you. I'm wondering about the awareness of awareness. You said like, just now the difference between open presence. The luminosity, especially in the, the earlier stages mm -hmm. of awareness of awareness, is that the, um, the sensations, like a, a, a vibrancy of the, of the sensations you feel anyway, but without conceptual elaboration? Because the experience is that I, I'm not s detecting anything other than a brightening of the sensations. There's no other ah, awareness. And let me ask for my clarification. When you speak of sensation, are you referring to... So for example, if I say I have a, a throbbing sensation in my knee, if I say that, what I'm referring to is an appearance, a tactile sensation, a tactile appearance arising in the location of my knee, which I'm experiencing, and, and it's very sharp, it's distinct, it's throbbing, it's got a heavy quality. Is that referring to... Or when you use the word sensation, are you referring not to the appearance, the sensations arising to you, but rather the quality of your own awareness? Because they're not the same. That's, that's, that's the, pr the trouble is that phrase, the quality of awareness, or just awareness without reference to sensations. Because yeah. when you say, okay, now come in and you know, see what is aware, what happens isn't that I find some awareness, but just that everything gets brighter then the inversion has not taken place yet. Because, in fact, everything will get over time. It's not going to happen overnight. But over time, everything's going to get dimmer. Dimmer everything except for your awareness itself. Right? Because this would still be, that is, if you're, the sensations are that, it was that which is appearing to the mind, and they're getting brighter, good, but that means you're still attending to the sensations which are getting brighter, and you're noticing that. So here, again, the analogy I like, I can't remember whether I've used it in our conversations, is to kind of get the idea of what exactly am I attending to here? Because it's not sensations. Sensations as in appearances arising to my sensory or mental awareness. It's not that. That's exactly what we're, we're disengaging from, as if you're falling asleep. <coughs> as if you're falling asleep, your, your physical senses, visual, auditory, and so forth, gradually withdrawing into purely mental awareness, they eventually completely implode. You become completely oblivious of your, of your, of your body, of the env physical environment, and you slip into purely mental consciousness. Okay? So, at least one of you, and I think a number of you, have already had the experience, even in this retreat, of falling asleep lucidly. One person described exactly what I've had in the past, and that is while lying in the supine position or simply rolling over to fall asleep, practicing awareness of awareness, it's a really good one because it's just so spot on right into the substrate consciousness. Um, and as you lie there, either in the supine position or as you wish to actually wish to fall asleep, withdrawing your awareness into itself and then becoming more and more relaxed, but without the light ever going off, that is without cognizance ever just going blotto, and basically losing consciousness. Uh, sustaining that cognizance, sustaining it, sustaining it, and still knowing, knowing, and then hearing yourself snoring. That's an interesting one. Because overall, people who snore are, are asleep. 
right? And you actually can wake yourself up out of being cognizant of deep sleep, or relatively deep sleep, by the sound of your own snoring. So, but that's it, you're disengaging from the whole sensory and the mental world. The mental world of thoughts, memories, fantasies, and so forth. So, to give some conceptual idea, and this is a, a surrogate for actually doing the practice, you know, and that is imagine that you're in a perfect sensory deprivation tank. Remember that one? A perfect sensory deprivation tank, so it's a thought experiment. But that is, so, sooner you're immersed in it and they put the lid down, you actually have no, no how do you say, sensory experience at all. It's perfect. You can't even feel your body. You've just become disembodied as far as you can tell. There's some special saline solution. Maybe it deadened all the nerve endings on your skin. Whatever. Thought experiment. So suddenly you have no sensory experience whatsoever. But what's left over? Thoughts, images, desires, hopes, fears, all the jumble, the cascading waterfall of the mind is still taking place. And then imagined that this is one super-duper uh, sensory deprivation tank, and it comes with magic, and the magic is somebody waves the wand over the sensory deprivation tank, and suddenly, all the stuff in the mind, all the javana, all the mental activities, they all go down flat. It's just quiet as a tomb. As a tomb. Now it's totally quiet. There's just nothing happening in your mind at all. It's just quiet. And the senses are getting nothing. What's left? Yeah. And that is, that vacuity is being brilliantly illuminated by only one thing, awareness. And there's a knowing. If, if somebody could do this to you, capture you, you know, kidnap Noah, put him in the center of deprivation tank, wave the wand, Imagine you're actually in that. If somebody, you know, kidnapped you, put you in there, waved the wand, and somehow or give you a drug, whatever, you know, but got your mind to completely shut up in the center of the depredation tank. Even if you, you have a conceptual gag rule, a gag, you know, a duct tape over your mental mouth, and you can't think, gee, it's dark in here. You can't even get that out. There's a knowing, and it doesn't have to be articulated. There's a knowing, boy, not much happening. <laughs> there's a knowing, hey, there's still a knowing. It doesn't have to articulate. There's a knowing of knowing, even though that's all there is to know. And that's where we're going. That's where we're going. So, as a method, we ignore everything else. Now. In the early phases of the practice, of course, we're not in a cent per perfect sensory deprivation tank. There's at least the sound of air conditioning or a bit of ambient noise in the environment, and of course, the junk in the mind, arising, arising. But we don't deliberately give any attention to it, except like, you know, you're irrelevant. I have, for this practice, I just have no interest in you at all. Zero. So I am going to exercise executive control, and I am, to the best of my ability, I'm going to turn my, away, my awareness away from all the appearances. Any thought that comes up, I'm just going to release it instantly. And I'm going to go into that silent, luminous, cognizant place. And just be aware of not being nothing. Aware of awareness is still happening without the commentary. And that's what's get brighter. Because as we release the grasping onto everything else, 
then it's the everything else that's obscuring the nature of the substrate consciousness. And therefore, in releasing that grasping, the nature of the substrate consciousness becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. So as method, I see it's 6 o'clock, 6.01 actually, uh, when Genlam Rimba taught me this, I, as I mentioned early on, I've been taught this method a number of times, one by this wonderfully experienced yogi, Genlam Rimba, back in 1988 during the one-year retreat. And he described it, again, in, in the Galupa fashion. Often the Galupa is a very elaborate, you know, this, because, largely because of this incredible brilliance of Tsongkhapa's mind and those who followed him. I mean, they just have these, these extraordinary erudite minds and they, they weave these elaborate weaves of philosophy and ethics and so forth and so on. But interestingly enough, and Tsongkhapa has a lot to say about shamatha. I think it's the largest presentation of shamatha I've ever seen. And I have translated it. I did. It was so large, there were two translators for just for the shamatha section. So I did half of it. And then all of his shamatha presentation for his medium lamrim. But when it comes to awareness of awareness, here's this man with this encyclopedic knowledge of Buddhism. It's incredible how much he knew and had it at its fingertips, it seems. And how much detail and the sources he brought together for this definitive presentation of shamatha. And then in that definitive presentation, when it comes to awareness of awareness, he gives it a one-liner. Quite interesting. You would expect that of a Dzogchen master or a Mahamudra master or a Milarepa. But no, it's Tsongkhapa, this you know, incredible scholar. He said, just the sheer luminosity and sheer cognizance of awareness. You're just resting just in that. And Genlam Rimba, then giving his, basically his commentary, he said, when you actually do it, and you're doing it correctly, at the first, and when you just start out, What you're actually attending to, what you're aware of, it's not very clear. It's your knowing, okay, I know I'm knowing, okay, got it. And yeah, there's a kind of a brightness, I guess. Although most of the brightness manifests in all the sensations. That's how I know it's bright, because it's illuminating all that stuff. You know, they're not illuminating awareness. Awareness is illuminating them, them, right? But the cognizance bit, okay, I get it. Not very clear, though. but I'm not doing anything else. Okay, I think this is as good as I can do. I don't see any fireworks going on. It's doing it correctly. It's not like, well, if you're not, well, crack the whip, try harder. It's not that. It's like settling the mind in its natural state. Once you're doing it correctly, don't mess with it. Right? And so just do that. And what he said is, as you do this, there won't be much clarity at the beginning. But as you simply do this utterly simple practice of resting in the awareness of awareness, it just gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. It's almost like you're, you, you've got a um, big magnifying glass. And you've got the sun beaming over your shoulder. And the magnifying glass is right there on an encrusted, let's say an ice-encrusted ice, ice Nucleus, right? And it just melts it away. It just melts it away until all that encrusts, that obscures the nature of substrate consciousness just melts away. And it gets clearer and clearer until it is your mind that is melted, dissolved into the substrate, and then it's all that's left. Okay? So it's, it's being patient with radical simplicity. Okay? Good. All right, it's 6.05. Ding, 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 ding. Enjoy your deal, your meal. I'll see you tomorrow.